Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through.
you once again for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk, part of the conservative conversation. And I would say this song is not more prevalent in, in, in its need as we have today. We've had uh, that is our opening song here since 2012 uh, when the show began, and at least for me, it has uh, more meaning today than maybe it did back then. Now, tonight we do have former White House speechwriter and heritage policy analyst Michael Johns joining us on the show. Uh, Michael is a co-founder of the National Tea Party Movement, uh, as well as I mentioned, the former White House speech powder to POTUS and policy analyst uh, for Heritage. Now, tonight uh, we're going to discuss how the deaths caused by the COVID-19 vaccines are not being covered by the media, not mentioned or reported very well by the CDC, and how the number of COVID deaths are being ignored, at least I think they are, <laughs> Uh, they're, they're not being touted the way they were when Trump was in office, uh, that is for certain. Uh, another topic I'm uh, hoping to include tonight is how DirecTV is taking a One American News network away from its viewers, uh, perhaps touch on the January 6th commission. One thing that I definitely want to point on is, you know, why the questions weren't asked uh, from Cruz. We'll talk more about that. And what is happening with the U.S. Supreme Court? So hopefully we'll be able to touch on all that, but first, let's go ahead and welcome our guest. I do see uh, Joseph and Kelly, our panelists on the line as well. We'll get you in uh, to the program uh, where we can and when uh, you can chime in. But let's go ahead and thank uh, our guests for coming here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for coming to the show. How are you this evening? Hey, doing fine. Good to be with you. Yeah, some props yeah, to the great band out of uh, Las Vegas otherwise, right? Am I calling that one right? What what's that? Like, I said some props to that's a great one of the great uh, bands out of Las Vegas. Otherwise, right with your uh, lead in music there. Yeah, I don't listen. I know I'm not a big music buff. I just you know, heard the song. <laughs> I, I, uh, I am. Yeah, it's a band, it's a band it called like Otherwise. Ago, so. <laughs> 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 you must be more versed in it than I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of their three or four recognizable songs, but one of the better ones. Good to be with you. Well, thank you. So, you know, recently, speaking of uh, of OAN, you recently had uh, an interview there, um, you know, talk about, you know, part of what we're going to be discussing uh, tonight. So let's just, uh, you know, go into it where you're talking about the, the deaths, you know, from the COVID vaccine and, and how, the, again, that's not really being, it's certainly being underreported, not really taking much attention to. Yeah, I, I mean, my thesis on this, which I think is a reasonable mainstream position that all Americans should embrace, uh, it doesn't jump to conclusions based on anecdotal uh, cases that have received some attention, but simply, you know, my, the, and this was what I, what I did lay out on, on OWN the other night, was that you have such meticulous, uh, diligent efforts that have been taken by the CDC all the way back to early 2020 to, to collect and calculate uh, and update in a very public fashion all of the uh, COVID cases and the COVID deaths. So if you go on the CDC site, for instance, they have a uh, data tracking uh, system that they rolled out, I'm sure at great expense probably to uh, the taxpayers. Um, that is designed, you know, it's broken down into, you know, color graphs and all the way from the, you know, sort of the, the world level to the national level to the state level down to the county level. 
updated every single night at 8 p.m. Now, there's been some controversy around the collection of that data, questions about whether there's deaths in there of individuals who died perhaps with COVID and not from COVID. Um, and some of that is rooted in the speculation of financial incentive in the sense that there was a 20% premium put on the Medicare for the treatment of, of uh, COVID uh, cases. I think it's you know, designed as all public policy is designed with good intentions of, of you know, and making sure no one was turned away uh, from this. But obviously, some, you know, serious questions there about that data. But it's meticulous, and it's rolled out with all of the 21st century authority of uh, today's scientism, um, which is, unquestion you know, cannot be questioned because it's a singular point of data, right? So it's not like... We have had, um, you know, multiple entities that are sort of auditing this or investigating it. You know, it essentially is the definitive uh, data that is presented, and the American people are, you know, by and large, asked to accept it without question. Um, and um, you know, you can get that every day, uh, you know, updated. As and it's been obviously it's been a kind of core part of this now to going on to your story because the, those numbers um roll up and it's like watching the uh you know the u.s uh debt numbers roll up on that ticker tape you just kind of sense you know this steamrolling effect they, they're not really reporting prominently the number of individuals who are recovering who are getting COVID and recovering that's you know far and away larger than those that are having serious effect of it but it, this has been a serious public health uh, challenge, no doubt about it. It's a real thing, um, and my my position is simply that take all of that um, effort and diligence that you that has been properly put into the collection of this data, and I'm I'm suggesting that's constructive data. We need that information to make sound public policy judgments, and uh, and and make that information available as it relates to vaccinations. And they are doing some of that. They're recording the number of individuals who've gotten partially or fully vaccinated. That's also updated uh, diligently and regularly. Not available, however, are these incidents and even deaths that have come from the vaccines. I'm not trying to inf uh, inflame or infer that those numbers are um, – uh, intimidating or extraordinary, or there's some cover-up, but there clearly has not been the effort put into calculating and updating these as there has been the COVID cases. And that becomes detrimental because ultimately what we're talking about, and I think most Americans are looking for, is to make an educated uh, individual health choice along with their physician on you know kind of a cost benefit analysis on whether or not to get vaccinated right i mean so in the absence of this so we have one side of the ledger that's kind of completely available prominently promoted um and you and you can you know tell at any moment what those numbers are as of today 870,195 deaths according to the cdc in the us from covid 72,310,575 cases. The vast majority of them, of course, have uh, obtained it and recovered. 210 million uh, 
vaccinations, which is 63, a little over 63%. That data is right there in front of anyone who looks for it. It's covered heavily in the media. Every one of these thresholds that have been surpassed, as you no doubt have noted, have gotten a lot of attention. You can recall, you know, when we went over 100,000, we went over a quarter of a million. Um, you know, these were, you know, you know, major events. And, 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 you know, kind of the takeaway is, well, wow, this thing is really frightening. This thing is really scary. And we need, um, you know, a hugely protective government to kind of intervene and tell us how to handle it. As we've gone along, uh, many of these judgments and recommendations have proven anywhere from wholly and completely inaccurate to dubious and questionable. You know, on the wholly inaccurate, I look at Fauci and say, you know, start with his opposition in that um, first White House meeting with Peter Navarro, which Peter documents in his book about the opposition to the uh, China travel ban. I mean, in my judgment, that was the, the biggest no-brainer was to stop the bleeding early on. Fauci opposed to that, mixed messaging on the masks. This, and, you know, in my judgment, probably completely wrong on the therapeutics, meaning, you know, one of the things you want in the arsenal of combating this, one of the things you want to make available to those who contract this, which you know are going to be a large number when it's at a pandemic, are therapeutics that can uh, reverse it and contain the seriousness of it. And, you know, there's been this conscious almost effort to denounce um not make available, not approve, and and really interfere in what should be this individual decision between the doctor and the patient, which is kind of the it's kind of the bedrock of American healthcare, kind of the bedrock of healthcare freedom, and I think that's why we're seeing such a visceral reaction from this isn't even ideological, it's not partisan, just a broad range of American people, and you, you could see it in that rally in D.C., which was actually you know rallies around the world ones in Europe have been even larger, um, is that this is not being well received by the American people. They don't feel their government is acting in their best interests. And that's kind of a terrifying reality since that's sort of the, you know, what you would first and foremost expect, you know, from, from government in these cases. Now, in fairness, you know, we've not faced this before. So a lot of these questions are ones that, um, you know, you have to be, I guess, a little bit tolerant for miscalculation, but the record here has been pretty bad. And I think the biggest ally, to come back to your question, is data. We had, you know, what else is going to drive these decisions other than data? So on the very question of should we be vaccinating children as young as five, which is now like the C, I think the CDC guideline, when they have a, uh, you know, a fractional percentage of um, of um, uh, mortality from uh, um, from the from the condition itself, <laughs> probably not. But it's you want to be able to make that decision based on the evaluation of data that they don't really readily make available. Now they have this one system set up called VAERS. Uh, for those who follow vaccines, they know all about it. For the, for the vast majority of people who don't, they know little about it or never even heard of it. But it's, it's essentially historically been voluntary reporting. It was launched in the 1980s, and it's never really been deemed as a credible database of um, 
of these incidents because of the voluntary nature of this. If you go on there today, if I'm reading it, if I'm reading it correctly, as recently as earlier today, they're reporting over 8,000 deaths from COVID vaccines, if I'm reading that correctly. And I'll tell you that it's so difficult to, to get through it um, on the, uh, the site compared to the data on the COVID cases. You have to go through multiple screens. You have to then, you know, you know accept all these disclaimers. I think 8,119 is what I saw. Well, that's, not, that's, you know, that, that's going on, on um, you know, over twice the, the number of individuals we lost on 9-11. It's a serious number of people. Well, I know they're also, you know, you talk about, you know, therapeutics and, and things that they are using, through my understanding, is, is remdesivir. And through my understanding of it, uh, that, that's not, that's actually causing more harm than good, or at least has the potential to be causing more harm than good. Because a lot of people are getting, like, renal failure and things of that nature uh, with this remdesivir. But through my understanding, they're, they're pushing that just because the, they can make more money from it. Yeah, I mean, uh, without getting into all the individual therapeutics, you know, you had these, you know, preliminary studies and realized, of course, that these vaccines never went through full FDA approval before they were not only commercially available, but were being pushed by the government, right? So, you know, the, the, quick, the, the, the quickest vaccine ever developed in American, in global history has been like four years a typical vaccine takes like 10 years uh, to develop. Now, when you ponder the concerns that I think exist about this, number one, vaccine is a very broad term. And within that, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's nomenclature that's really not, not really clinically based because there's so many subcategories, so many different types. And, you know, in this case with the MRNA, um, approach to this vaccination, you know, that, that has real risk. And it, it no, it, there was never any thinking that this would be a vaccine that would be utilized or encouraged to be used in a universal way. You know, it was designed for individuals with, you know, high risk um, and, um, you know, and then other steps would be taken. But you can see just the, the this, um, what appears to be a very politicized push for universal vaccination. And, you know, rule number one of vaccines is with mutations, the vaccination, the, the, a fully vaccinated population is going to end up with a more aggressive um, uh, virus because it's going to try to work around the vaccines. That's kind of the, uh, the inherent uh, ugly genius, I guess you would say, of, of, you know, of any virus. And that's obviously now happening with multiple mutations and um, these vaccines are, um, you know, not proving resistant to that. So I think we're at a point where the, the policy, you know, there's kind of like two points. Number one is, you know, the policy certainly needs to be scrutinized, right? And, um, and, and we can't just be accepting these edicts uh, from these non-elected administrators who have been um, not terribly forthcoming with, with, with data. And then number two is the data needs to be publicly available 
on the areas that aren't as convenient to their argument. And that is that we know, you know, that when it comes to both death and when it comes, you know, more commonly to other incidents from the vaccine, some of which are, you know, very minor and easily handled, some of which are more significant and even chronic, um, we need to be aware of those, and that needs to factor into the conversation between a physician and a patient on the cost-benefit analysis of whether a vaccine in their individual case is or is not warranted. And that's, you know, simply always been the foundational principle of American healthcare. This idea of um, of, of a universal vaccine that is experimental still in nature, um, that now has, you know, thousands of, of very serious incidents and that we're not really broadly reporting on. And an American population whose um, risk both to the uh, virus itself and also to the vaccine is completely variable based on demographics, based on age, based on comorbidities, based on a broad range of considerations, meaning that it's very difficult to look at this and say that there are black and white answers that apply to every single one of these cases. Um, you know, if, if you're older and you've got comorbidities, certainly seems to be suggested that the um, vaccines are advisable. Um, this idea of, of mandating vaccines to, um, you know, children five, six, seven years old is, is immensely controversial. It's not probably accepted on a clinical basis. Um, and, um, you know, and, and it's appropriate for people to push back on this because, you know, the concern all along is, you know, what element of politics exists in all this. You know, it, it, it certainly appears that um, there's been, a, you know, a considerable dimension of that. It's not, um, and, and you can see it in the contradictions of positions that just have varied throughout this nearly two-year horrible experience that's ultimately cost, you know, uh, uh, many lives, but you know, and done extraordinary damage to this economy in, in ways that may not even be fully recoverable. You know, meaning we might come out of this when we come out of it, if we come out of it. One thesis is that this is going to be around like influenza forever. Uh, but if we come out of it fully, you know, this economy is one where, you know, really big, large box stores have kind of gained ground, those that have had the ability to do shipments and have had, you know, the economies of scale and have had, um, all the access to, to liquidity and, and finance and smaller um, companies, which, you know, in my view are kind of the foundation of American economy, have been really, really decimated. Um, many bankruptcies never are going to be back again, and that's um, decimating to the economy on a national level, but, you know, on a community level as well. Um and of course, all behind all this, which we can't forget, is um, you know the Wuhan Institute of Virology, funded by Tony Fauci, um, and um, you know, and and China's Communist Party basically misleading the world 
and not being forthcoming um, in those early days in ways that would have been hugely constructive uh, in our understanding of the magnitude of the risk and how to handle it. But, you know, even in my own um, kind of engagement with their representatives, including on Chinese television, yeah, they wouldn't even acknowledge that this, the origin of it was China. I mean, they fueled the world right. with disinformation about it and were very um, both, I think, deceptive and sincere and, uh, and, and utilizing it really, you know. It, it, it's really amazing to me. I mean, I, there's nothing more astonishing. I, you know, I expect China's Communist Party to act in in evil, illegal ways. It is a uh, regime engaged in genocide, as was designated by the U.S. government. But the Fauci thing just comes back to me when you just, on a common sense level, and, and you know, with my government experience, to, for him to have sat in on these COVID working groups, which were meeting once, twice a day, day, as you can recall. They were having those midday press conferences that were being covered by news networks, you know, from beginning to end. Just to put yourself in Fauci's shoes, and you know during the Obama administration that you had initiated funding for the Wuhan Institute of Virology and gain-of-function research, which mm-hmm. now is almost indisputably the origin of this pandemic. And and then it, it's so dangerous. Even the Biden NSC team says, Tony, you got to stop this. This is the the risk is too great. He stops it, and then Trump comes in. He's sort of understaffed. Um, they're kind of getting things together in those early months, and has been reported. You know, kind of goes back in. You know, interacts with mid-level or even lower-level officials. Gets the funding reinstated to. Um, this Wuhan Institute of Virology, you know, the individuals there of whom are reporting to the CCP and the PLA, their military wing, um, but he considers them colleagues, describes them as such, and um, never once um, reveals to the president of the United States, um, Trump at the time, to uh, Vice President Pence, who was chairing those meetings, or to any of his colleagues that, hey, by the way, we've been putting U.S. money into this uh, CCP PLA run lab. To me, that and that alone, even if his judgment clinically had been spot on, and it's been far from that, I think inaccurate in almost all respects, um, would be a basis for removing this guy. And yet there he is still, you know, with all of this, perceived prestige that really has no underlying foundation in anything. Um, It's a very inexcusable situation, and um, it's very much at the core, in my view, of why this has proven and continues to prove so costly to this day. Well, a a couple things, and circling back, I'm just kidding. I, I, I always cringe when I hear people say that phrase all the time, circling back. It's like now it's like in our life. I can't now. use that any longer. But, yeah, thanks, yeah, thanks, so Jen. I, <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I can't. I, I cringe when I hear. I, I hear people using it more than than they than they did. I'm like, so now I, I just said that in jest. But um, I mean, for one, no no one can convince me that COVID is it was not man made. No, no. I mean, just 
the way it affects different people, who, who it affects them, how it affects them in the long term. You know, you got long COVID, things of that nature. Uh, there's, I don't think it, someone would be very hard-pressed to, to prove to me that COVID was not man-made. Um, well, you, to, in support of what you're saying, let me just, I, you know, I think you're right in, in your uh, presumption there. Um, we always lose these debates when we get into these presumptions, I've noticed. You know, it's always the facts are on our side, and then sometimes we take it too far. But consider the alternative approach that Fauci and others were pushing. When you really drilled down to the details, they were saying, you know, no, this had come from, you know, these bats that, by the way, weren't <laughs> like in Wuhan. They were, uh, they were you know, like a a 10, 12-hour drive away, almost down by the Laos border. That, so they had obtained these bats that had this and that they had brought them back. No one's infected along the whole way. And then suddenly within like a you know, you literally have individuals within the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself and then within like a couple square miles of there who are the first, you know, really to be infected. And then, of course, the first individual, to my knowledge, in the United States, so I think there might have been another individual that was actually earlier, but the first case, case one in the U.S. Is, at the early days was, this, you know, a thirty-some-year-old um, man who had just been in Wuhan um, out and and had returned to Washington State. Um, and you know, I have to say, it's it's almost like you can take the facts as they're presented and turn every one of them upside down. One thing I would say in support of President Trump is this was an amazing curveball that was thrown at us. There was no textbook necessarily on how to handle this because you don't understand the mechanics of the virus itself, and the CCP did not make that uh, easy. would have been great. We should have been afforded access to that lab right away. Uh, the World Health Organization should not have been lied to. Uh, as they were, you can recall back in, um, you know, a few months into this, that, that uh, WHO was putting out the message that they had, uh, there was no, that China had assured them there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of COVID-19. Um, you know, that tweet and message, I think now since deleted, was consciously designed to mislead the world about the seriousness of this when they saw individuals were, you know, literally collapsing on the street in Wuhan and in other locations in China from it and were fully aware, um, at least, of the magnitude of, of risk that was presented to the world. And, um, and that, too, I think supports your supposition of and what is gain of function research and let's break that down into street terms you know that's ultimately you're, you're taking a virus you're manipulating it and making it you know more extreme more severe easier uh, to transmit and then more more um, uh, endangering and more more serious to patients who are on the receiving end of it. So they were manipulating in this gain-of-function research, now fully documented. I mean, you can see the proposals. You can see the, the, the third-party agents that they worked through. And then all of these individuals who were asked to kind of explain this themselves had conflicts of interest with longstanding relationships with China's Communist Party um, 
I think of that Peter Daszak interview on 60 Minutes, just, you know, disgraceful, really, for him to, when he's asked by, uh, I think, Leslie Stahl about uh, how he knew, how did he, how was he so sure that this didn't come out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And he says, well, you got to understand, you know, we went over there and, and I, I went in and I asked them and they said it didn't. <laughs> and that was and you're like, okay, and then you, what, what? You did an audit? You, uh, you brought in other – no, no, this, this one singular guy who himself had this longstanding, you know, comfy relationship with China's Communist Party and with that particular Institute of Biology and the individuals managing it was told by them that they had – that they were – um, assured and, and were sure that it did not originate there. And, and he literally leaves as the singular American part of the WHO who was allowed, even allowed entry into China. And, um, and that's the extent of the explanation. This is absurd. I mean, we should not be tolerating this. And I'll tell you something, the cost and the liability that goes back on the CCP and potentially on some of these individuals, if they were misleading on it, literally needs to be prosecuted in a serious way. We're talking about trillions of dollars of damage, probably a full year's GDP of the United States at least, maybe more, and then on a global level. Uh, and that, that we're going to have you know, these Olympics go forward in, in Beijing with this very minimal you know, no U.S. Uh, officials there, but, you know, essentially as if nothing's gone on there that's terrifying. It's almost reminiscent of the um, German Olympics um, yeah. now, so con now, you know, in retrospect, so obviously counterproductive from a global messaging standpoint as it related to the ongoing Holocaust and uh, the emergent emergence of World War II. Now, one of the things I wonder is if the Republicans, you know, do take the House, and by the number of uh, Democrats who are retiring, <laughs> I think it's up to like 29 or 30 now, uh, with the number of them retiring, I'm wondering if, I mean, they're seeing the wave, and if the Republicans do indeed take the House by, and by good margins, uh, do you think that they'll actually take up the mantle of actually investigating a real investigation well, of the origins of the COVID? system has become so – look, I've been, been at this for 30 years, and I never felt this. Uh, just the opposite. I really – you know, if you look at the Republicans that I worked for in the beginning part of my career, I mean, they all would be described as moderate Republicans, even rhinos by today's uh, definitions. Um, they all believed ultimately – that while there was an ideological division between the two parties, that that was a constructive thing. It provided healthy debate, and that at the end of the day, every public servant was there, you know, trying to pursue the best for the country. That's no longer really the operating thesis of either party, and bipartisanship has been it's been I don't even want to say you know to say it's been gone it's been gone for a long time now um it's a very and when you see these democrats leaving why are they leaving they see the writing on the wall that we might be yeah picking up as many as a hundred I'm not even kidding as many as a hundred seats I mean the tea party wave that I was intimately involved with in 2010 which itself was historic unprecedented all the way back to the 30s 
uh, in this country of Republicans that came in on the Tea Party wave could be exceeded uh, this year. And if that's done and you're dealing with a president in Biden who's going to veto legislation, anything that's got an R name on it, he's going to veto, you, you know, you kind of look at it and say, well, what is going to be the role of each one of these committees? I mean, what's, you're going to sit there and put together legislation. Democrats aren't going to cooperate on it. They're not going to put their names on it. Right. They're going to insist on all this outrageous content as they have throughout these stimulus bills. And um, you're either going to allow further damage to be done to this economy, including these and and believe me, this inflationary pressure is just getting going now. I mean, when you look at the uh, uh, these wholesale numbers, this is going to flow th- with her, at, you know, extraordinary numbers. That's, it's going to flow through into retail level, and you know, we, and it's not even industry specific any longer. I mean, we're looking at the petroleum pressures. I mean, all that stuff would continue on that watch. I think what option really do you have, except to say we have so many questions now as it relates to foreign governments and as it relates to our own government under Biden that need to be investigated. And in the ideal world, I think you would look, you know, to the DOJ and the FBI in some of these cases to do that time after time after time. That's That's just not occurring. And that's what happens when politics and self-interest takes over, you know, the the institutional responsibility that anyone has as a public servant, one that I've always attempted to take seriously, and, and really that anyone in this whole profession, you know, even if you're outside of the government domain, needs to take seriously. You know, like the facts really matter. Um, you can't be embellishing things. You can't be concealing uh, uncomfortable information. You can't be hypocritical or, or selective in the way you pursue things, or you are a partisan instrument, not an instrument of patriotism and Americanism. And we've reached the point where, you know, that's really the way this system is struck. And, it's, and I, you know, it's a long explanation as to how we got here, but one of, the, one of the quickest and best fixes we could do would be strip this power out of leadership in both parties. This is absurd to have, you know, like, you know, six or eight individuals between both bodies that are essentially making all of the decisions, right? I mean, and it, it, it made, you know, kind of seems okay decades ago. It's not working any longer. You have members of Congress that aren't even being given the time to read complicated legislation before they vote on it. They're not really being given at the end of the day the luxury of independence to deviate from leadership on these issues, um, and every single major decision as it relates to committee assignments, as it relates to legislation that does or doesn't reach the floor, is or is not considered, individuals who are primaried or not primaried, uh, how much you know party money flows into this campaign or that campaign, right. you know, all rests on these individuals. And why are they there? I mean, when you look at you know Nancy Pelosi, Schumer, you know, and on our side, McConnell and McCarthy as well. Yeah, Are they the I'm most not a big sophisticated? Fan of one of no one is. That's the point. No one is. I mean, anyone who says they are is, you know, either a relative or in, <laughs> in some way in their employ. And there is a large <laughs> consultant. Right. And, and one of the reasons you won't hear 
that kind of blunt discussion in D.C. is you've got so many financial ties, you know, in the sense that uh, the politics side of this is, is a consultant-based industry, and, it's, and, it, and they hold all of the strings on, on power on that. But are these people particularly compelling? Or do they have great amounts of trust? Are they the best policy experts? Are they the best orators? Are they the best, you know, negotiators and deal makers with the other side? No, they're not really particularly exceptional in any of those respects. They're the best fundraisers. And that is how they sort of elevate to these positions of leadership. And that was even okay uh, when at least there was some diversification of the authority and, and power. But now that it's so utterly centralized in their hands, um, it's not really functioning as as a democratic political body. And you see, it, when I see these members of Congress that are like launching podcasts, I, my, I'm like, that's all. No one sent you there to go do a podcast, right? <laughs> we sent you there to to to, to represent what is usually about eight hundred thousand, you know, constituents in your district to understand what their challenges and needs were and, and how those intersected with, you know, government and to work on solutions. And Brent, this got, was true go ahead. And then in I both Kelly. parties. I'm going to bring in. He wants to chime in. Both parties essentially, uh, not even a pretense of doing that. And uh, so if you listen to, you know, like Matt Gates say, hey, we're going to turn all of these committees into investigatory committees, when I first hear that, I'm like, wow, that's going to really poison the well. But when you think about it, um, there are so many unanswered questions, and there's such a limitation on really what they're able to do in the absence of the Biden administration or even fellow Democrats cooperating. I can see how somebody comes to that conclusion. I do think anyone, any Republican running out there right now, and we're in, you know entering this primary season right now, you got to ask, if you're running for Senate, are you going to vote? Uh, for McConnell to, you know, continue to be the leader? Are you going to continue to support um, McCarthy? Because um, if you do that and we take these bodies back, I'm not sure a lot's going to change. And you saw that in these Senate votes. I mean, he had kind of body pinned down on, um, you know, on a number of these themes and to – not keep the Republican caucus in line on the, on that in the Senate, I think was a real fatal blow. And it's proving really detrimental on this inflationary pressure. I mean, that's like a real, we're going to think about real things and real impact that this is, that all these things are having on the American people. And that's something these guys sadly don't, they, not only do, is it not a primary consideration many times, they just don't even have the exposure to it. It's one of the reasons they got blown out by the Tea Party movement in 10 and in the Senate in 14, because a lot of us, me included, got around the country. We saw how people were thinking about it, and we were able to position that leadership. That was the good news. The bad news is a lot of the people that talked a good game got there and were co-opted by the system. And we have to figure out how to resolve that because, you know, what purpose is all of that? Yeah, so all of that effort. Yeah. yeah, I've heard a lot of people, you know, complain about some rhinos uh, infiltrated the Tea Party. I'm going to bring in uh, Kelly in real quick. He's got some things he wants to, to add to that. Uh, go ahead, uh, Kelly. Thanks for coming to the show. Well, Michael, I am very 
honor to be on the phone with the one of the co-founders of the Tea Party. I'm here in Siskiyou County, California. We're on the Oregon border. We are more independent than I would say we're Republican. And so the Tea Party's had a really good effect here <clears throat> locally. We have done a lot at the county supervisors' meetings. The supervisors are listening to the people now just simply because we have large numbers, and we we now have two. We call them the Patriot Party now, but one in Mount Shasta and one in Wairika. And uh, we have seen the supervisors come <clears throat> a number of times uh, to these meetings, and we get to, you know, just because we have large numbers, we can attract the supervisors. And so it's a very encouraging uh, movement. I think I went to one of the first ones in the park with a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Mr. Nunn. UNN. Anyway, so that's really encouraging to, to be talking with you. And oh, by the way, I have to apologize to you. Um, me not wearing my raincoat makes your raincoat ineffective. <laughs> yeah, the logic just breaks down, and you can find a lot of uh, examples from. Yeah. Well, just you know, I was going to say we. I mentioned the nomenclature earlier. When you think about the the phrase "safe" and "effective," okay, and then take that. I happen to have had, in addition to all this political stuff, about 20 years of experience in, in the healthcare industry, including in, in the pharma area. When, an Amer- when a typical American without that exposure here is safe, they, they feel like, okay, no one's going to die, no one's going to suffer any long-term injury or disability. Um, that's clearly not proven to be the case. And when you hear effective, you say, I'm going to get this vaccine and I'm not going to get covid well, you know, this, this pandemic is is ravishing. It's decimating those who are already vaccinated. Another oh, yeah. and one of the most yeah, compelling I, reasons that this universal vaccination policy is totally misguided clinically and seems to be more about control than um, than the actual health care of it. And, yeah, on the Tea Party movement, this is the key um, that um, – and this was the thinking uh, that went into Febu- the founding in February 2009 was that we had no power then, like we have none now. Okay, so when we sat around and said, look, Obama had just been elected. He was being fawned over by the White House press corps. They weren't holding him accountable to anything. He wasn't even answering any questions about the most fundamental things that we wanted to know. Um, the House was in the hands of Nancy Pelosi then. Uh, Harry Reid, who I guess just passed away, um, so condolences to him, even though he was on the other side, uh, controlled the Senate. He was a very partisan guy, impossible to kind of, you know, deal with, really. And uh, and then all the institutions, which we're, we're not even talking about, you know, academia and, 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 and the, uh, the bureaucracy, the so-called deep state, you know, all – every – <laughs> everything really in the hands of the left. Where do you start your comeback? And I know that's what a lot of Americans are saying now. They're looking out and they're saying, I don't like the direction the country's taking. I don't like the effect that these policies are having on me personally, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, the first thing is kind of what you're doing there in Northern California is that you have to hold, uh, you know, on the, even on the most micro local level possible these policy um, and and political office holders accountable with serious questions about what they're doing and you can see and we have seen 
in the case of the Moms of America, who I totally support. I, I mean, I think this is like one of the most constructive developments in a long time. That they're con- they're showing up at these school boards and asking the logical questions and and providing the testimony too, or the personal testimony. Like, look, here's how my six-year-old or seven-year-old daughter feels wearing a mask eight, nine hours a day. Here's what she has to say when she gets home. Um, these are th- this is where the rubber hits the road, and the people making these decisions need to be held accountable for them, and they need to hear those stories in a very personalized way. And that's ultimately the way out, in my view. That's what we need to be doing right now, and that requires a, it requires a lot of unity, a lot of collaboration, um, and some boldness. Take some guts, you know. But look look at the history of this great country, you know. And, and ponder how much are we really asking of people to stand up and defend individual liberty and common sense in our public policy. Well, what's really encouraging locally, I mean, yeah, it's frustrating what's going on, and there have been stark realities that you end up with the angry moms meeting, which I went to one here in the county. And uh, it was 60 plus people showed up. There's a uh, maybe 4,000 people, four, four or 5,000, I think, live in Scott Valley. And a bunch of angry moms showed up, uh, an angry mom. Well, that's just what I call them. The state is demanding that the kids get vaccinated to continue in school, and so people are probably applying at charter schools. They're, they're filing their papers so they can homeschool to avoid these vaccines. And uh, Kelly, you're sounding upset. real muffled uh, there, Kelly. Hold on. Uh, well, that, yeah, that sounded better. Yeah. Is, that, is, is that is that better? Is that better? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So yeah, these angry moms are are rising up, and then you have the question befalls them, and they somebody starts uh, a type of movement, if you, and the movement would be, um, oh, what do we do about this? Who can help us go to the tea party? There you go. And the the lady that's been hats off to her, Louise Gliato, she's been hosting the meetings uh, twice a month. Sometimes it was once every week. They went to twice a month. And so here you got a Tea Party person in place with a group of people that can help these angry moms get stuff done. Because when people wake up, they're, what do we do? And how do I – the isolation has to be – I've been a political activist for over 30 years. You have to break people's isolation. You got to help them feel that they're not going crazy with what they've just discovered. Right. Yeah, uh, have to very, empower that's them. That's very good. Yeah. Uh, you obviously have, have observed, I have observed that as well. I think I always knew it, but um, it really was affirmed to me when you when you think about you know like a dozen people on a, on a conference call blossoming into a movement that's ultimately like you know twenty thirty million people, the largest independent. Uh, grassroots political movement in the country's history. Okay, um, it, it, how does that happen? It, it, it's really it, it happens because individuals are are looking for an outlet and they want to do something. And I think this is what's still so great about the United States of America is people are willing to engage. They're less willing to do it alone, but when they show up and they see that others have the same concerns or maybe even have them more seriously than they do, they then feel validated because 
human psychology is structured in a way that if you're looking at the world and it appears, you know, one color and everyone else is looking at it and it appears another color, um, you start to become less insistent that you're right and you actually start to reconsider your supposition about what you think you've observed. Um, you know, the, so people in mass are an empowering force, and that can be a constructive thing as it's been with the Tea Party movement, and it can also be a very detrimental thing, as I think it was with the, with the lives lost and the billions of dollars of damage that BLM did in the streets. It really accomplished very little. Um, so, you, so anyone engaged really at any level, one of the messages I've always had on this has to always be conscious of, of the responsibility that's attached to this level of activism and to make sure that the steps are serious, measured, goal-oriented, peaceful, lawful. Those are all important because um, tensions, are, tensions run high on these things. And, uh, and I can only imagine how a mom or dad who was a little kid is, you know, complaining about having to wear a mask. Now you're having to put them through an experiment, you know, uh, essentially an experimental vaccine that's got ramifications from the standpoint of long-term that we don't even know with pharmaceutical companies that have been granted full immunity, right? So, you know, to spend anything, anything happens to any of these. So you're mandated to get this vaccine that certainly has no, we have no long-term data on. And simultaneously, oh, by the way, the three primary companies, uh, Moderna, Pfizer, and um, Janssen, J&J, um, cannot be, cannot be uh, sued. And, yeah, the uh, well, and they're also, yeah. hey, uh, in addition, I, I wanted to, real, real quick, Cal, I, I want to bring this up because I've seen this the other day and it, it kind of got my, you know, got my good going, is that there's a, a, a guy in Boston who they took him off Heart the transplant. waiting list for a heart transplant because yeah. he wouldn't get vaccinated. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you know, I saw that, and you know, the only thing I can say is, like, on transplant, uh, the, you know, kind of these transplant policies is, you know, you only get so many organs and, 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 and a larger number of individuals seeking transplants. And, you know, so, for instance, if, if you're a smoker or a non-smoker, the non-smoker might get it earlier. Um, if you have other comorbidities, they might not. So, but it's all being seen through this prism that having gotten the vaccine is uh, supportive and promotional of longevity when we have some pretty solid emerging indications that this vaccine itself has thrombotic and cardio risks attached to it and possibly, um, you know, others. So when you've got, you know, the highest public health officials in the country saying, no, we absolutely need this universal vaccination, but then you've got this emerging data about, um, you know, the cardio and thrombotic uh, effects, it, you know, it seems to contradict common sense, and it would seem to be that that should not be prohibiting that individual from obtaining what I'm sure is a life-saving um, heart transplant. Yeah. Hey, uh, I wanted to uh, mention a few things, and I want to help you with some tools. I want to give you some tools. 
So people become awake. They're in somewhat of an emotional surprise. They need emotional validation. Break the isolation. Encourage them. Empower them. Give them some tools. And then we get action. They get organized, et cetera. So um, you've probably heard of the Joseph Keating death in uh, South Dakota. He was 26 years old. He died on November 12th of myocarditis. He took his booster shot. And this is reported on the Children's Defense Network, uh, RFK Jr., Jr., uh, the yep. attorney, his his uh, website, okay? So this is also for the audience. But basically, he took the booster, 26 years old, called into sick sick the next day at work, completely exhausted. His dad and mom were visiting him. His mom was a nurse. He got an Apple Watch to measure his heart rate, and at times he was over 140 beats per minute. His parents visited him every day. On the fourth day, they found him dead in a chair. His heart just gave out. And his mom, the nurse, insisted on an autopsy. In the autopsy, they did cross-sections of the heart, and, 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 the, and the report of the autopsy was chronic myocarditis in every cross-section of his heart. Yeah, I'm very, I'm, very familiar, I'm very familiar with that case, and I know, uh, and maybe you can update me if I'm missing something, but I know they you know, insisted on the autopsy, and I, and I know that it was days or a week or almost a week later, and there's been, like, no inquiry from the CDC uh, from the standpoint of an investigation. Um, and the, uh, their autopsy report of this, otherwise, as I understand it, pretty healthy 20-some-year-old uh, guy was, um, you know, that he had the, the myocarditis in that left ventricle. Uh, and that it was due to the uh, the uh, COVID booster uh, vaccine he had received. So these are the this goes back to what I had said earlier about the VAR system. Is I don't want to be the person who said who is cautioning the country about possible downside risks, even if they're minimal. But our government should be doing that, and and instead we're relying on this database that has a history of being self-reported um, and every time you raise it to prove a point um, they say you can't rely on it. Well, if you can't rely on it, what are we doing? I mean, this thing goes all the way back to the 1980s and some of the concerns about the impact of vaccines on children. Um, it doesn't seem to be suitable for this moment and I just simply believe the American people, I assume Robert Kennedy would agree with me on this. I haven't heard him say it, but I assume he also is no fan of the VAERS system because he, I'm, it, it, you see these people that are writing and speaking routinely on these things, and he's certainly one of the most prolific. Um, when he cites VAERS, their response is, oh, no, you can't use that data. Well, if you can't use the data, then let's get data that you can use. And I suggested at the very beginning here, and I have been saying over the most recent weeks, that the collection of that data is not terribly difficult or complicated or impossible. We're just simply choosing not to do it. You bring the same amount of energy and passion and, and meticulous collection and public, uh, and, and public disclosure of this that you brought to the uh, COVID cases and the COVID uh, deaths that have been updated literally daily, pushed out all over the place. And then someone says, hey, by the way, how many people have died from these three emergency use vaccines and we're in a guessing game? We shouldn't be in a guessing game about it. Right. Well, I, I talked to a, a doctor. He was pro-vax, and he cited polio. Well, 
polio when it was going its full thing. 21% of the people died. We knew that 3 to 5% would die from the vaccine, which is better, like 21% or 3 to 5 I asked him, what about Varys? He said, the families have to push the doctors, otherwise they don't do the reporting. So, yeah, we got a problem there. And I, mentioned, I, I heard your frustration because I'm leading to giving you some tools. I really want to give you a powerful tool. I heard your frustration earlier that you're that it, it appears nothing's being done about this. There's no accountability. The CDC, just a minute or two ago, I heard it again. Um, have you ever heard of willful misconduct in office by public officers? Have yeah, you of heard course. of derelict of yeah malfeasance, misfeasance, and derelict yeah. of de- yeah? Okay, so this mm-hmm. is what they're doing. Why are they getting away with it? Why? Um, I'm with a group well, called the COVID-19 Research Team, and and I'm, I'm leading to some tools here. I mean, I'll, I'll uh-huh. go ahead and give you a few minutes, but I want to I want to give you these tools and try to connect off air. Yeah. Um, well, here's my here's what I'm what I'm asking. Um, and by the way, I'm I'm asking this. I'm not. If there's some reasonable rebuttal to my position on why this is an illogical ask or why it's asking too much. I'm all ears, but I, I just – my own experience is that it's a very uh, reasonable one, is let's get away from let's, – let's have a definitive count on the side effects, short-term and long-term, and deaths from uh, these vaccines. I believe, in, in, in fairness to uh, CDC – they might benefit from making that information public because it might um, and almost certainly would be lower than some of the sort of anti-vax community are suggesting. They're applying multiples to those numbers based on historical data of under-reporting, but the uh, death from a vaccine is man, it has to be uh, reported under the, uh, what was that first uh, stimulus bill that was put in there, uh, I believe. And so they might benefit. I, I, I think the worst thing, and, and one of the strongest held positions I've held about public service and government generally is, is you know, to maintain the trust of the people, uh, be straightforward with them, give them more, not less information, and explain it. You know what I mean? And that's what I just don't believe we're getting. We're told this is the way to do it. Don't question it. If you do it, you're not, you know, we're going to, you're, we're going to, you know, censor you or shut you down. I mean, these physicians are afraid of being, you know, losing medical licenses or or facing medical board discipline. That's outrageous. I mean, science and the essence of science, all the way back to your seventh grade science fair is based on experimentation and, and, and critical thinking and questioning, and particularly on, on a COVID-19 that didn't exist before 2019, it's fair to say that there's a lot of things we probably don't know. And these vaccines are not like historical or typical vaccines. Their structure and their functionality, which is molecule-based, is a very different one um, than, than some of the extraordinary success stories that we've had with, with vaccinations. And I'm not an anti-vax person at all. In fact, I've traveled all over the world. I've gotten really obscure vaccinations and done it willingly. Um, there is something 
uncomfortable about the magnitude of energy that's being brought and and where it's coming from uh, for these forced vaccines. And there's something very uncomfortable about the resistance that I'm seeing emerge, you know, particularly in Europe, you know, with these rallies and, you know, just the, the magnitude of force and breaking them up. Of anyone who kind of says, you know, maybe this isn't the best way to do it or let's at least um, – you know, have some open consideration dialogue. I'm not seeing that between the uh, the government that's it's ostensibly there to represent the interests of people and facilitate these issues. Well, when you're concealing information or offering misguided information, uh, which clearly we've done, you can go back another 60 minutes second and look at Fauci early on scoffing at the use of masks. I mean, that, that's right there on YouTube. You can, anybody could find it. Say, oh, no, they don't really work. You know, you're, you're moving them on. You're moving them off. And just the contradiction in this man whose sole purpose is to be providing authority-based clinical guidance on how the American people should view this. And, of course, his minimizing the threat that we faced early on is, is a basis. It, it's, it's a sign that he is not the leader that we need at this moment. And um, it's astonishing to me that he's still there, quite honestly. Oh, yeah. I I am shocked by Fauci's flip-flop. And, uh, you know, what is science? Um, There's science politicized, and they say, trust the science, trust the science. What is science? I happen to have a master's degree in science. I'm an engineer. had six chemistry classes and other things in engineering. Science is the study and documentation of repeatable events. Yeah, tap your brake. Uh, 999.9999% right. of the time, you're going to stop. That is a repeatable event. Okay. And that so, data and the averaging of it and, and working it into these individual cases is at the core of it. So when you say, hey, look, uh, you, we're going to mandate these vaccines. Uh, oh, by the way, there's no lie. You can't sue the manufacturers, then that happens. And we're not really going to make the data too broadly or uh, definitively available so that you can tell what magnitude of risk, if any, you're taking in getting them. Um, and they're in, a, they're in a, you know, an emergency use experimental authorization stage, which you know, means they've kind of shortcut some of the three phases of FDA approval yeah, yeah. That's, how would that not concern? And if you're not concerned about that process, you're not you're not you're not intellectually deliberating over it. Uh, it could be we're cutting through all these steps and everything's going to be fine. But um, well, I want to yeah, make my, you know, my position is I want to make yeah. sure everything's fine. And I'm and I'm looking like literally as early as today and seeing over eight thousand deaths reported on on the the VAERS system uh, directly attributable to the vaccine and that's not a number that we're hearing and then of course you could find a good number of um, clinical experts and and other statistical experts who suggest that there's still an underreporting trend on this because how theirs is looked at um, as being a voluntary reporting system and that it might not be definitive I'd like to see some auditing. I think that's kind of the bottom line. I'd like to see some auditing of the actual death numbers. You know, make sure go. That wasn't really clear early on. You can recall the controversy that existed 
of individuals who, you know, presented maybe with primary pneumonia and, and kind of a secondary COVID and, and passed away. And, and, you know, you read the cause of death and it's COVID. Um, and we really should get those numbers right. I don't think that's, I know that's a major undertaking with several hundred thousand, but it's not overwhelming for the, with all the resources of the U.S. government. And we certainly should make these numbers on the vaccines available because the best case scenario is they might be reassuring. Biden is not having much success despite all of those campaign pledges he made in his basement in getting the American people to comply with this. And this is not even a partisan, this is not a partisan thing either. All right. There are large, large percentages of people that simply do not trust the information they're getting. And I can see the basis of that mistrust is the lack of authentic presentation of data and reassurance. There's a lot of people that are out there. And I think you know, there's people that are never going to get it. There's people that, look, it doesn't matter what happens, they, you know, they'll, they'll die from the disease before they get it. There's a large number of people that are saying, you know, maybe I'll still ultimately get it, but I want to see some more information. I want to see how this plays out. And so far, I just don't think we're taking the steps necessary to build the trust that is so essential between the power of our federal government and all of its agencies and, the, and what they have and what they know and what the American people are, are reasonably asking and what their treating physicians need to know. So I'm, I hear a lot of people say, well, my doctor says, you know, it, it's probably a good idea. But, yeah, but your doctor is in the same position you're in. Your doctor doesn't have this data either. You know, it sure should be made um, available, and we can do, and we can do it. Well, my wife's doctor comment was, uh, what, what, what they say, don't be chicken and get the vaccine or don't be a scaredy cat is, is, is my wife's answer to her um, concerns about the vaccine. <laughs> That's her answer. Don't be a scaredy well, cat. Get the vaccine. <laughs> what well, yeah, the doctor saying yeah. that? <laughs> Yeah, well, well here's I, I, I had a client on Monday, a doctor, he's total anti-vax, totally support him. He's got to tell people, move out of California. Anyway, doctors are waking up, that's great. But the average patient has to trust the doctor. Who's the doctor trusting? CDC, who's the CDC trusting? Third-party labs and a whole bunch of other people. So what happens, you have a chain of trust here. The patient have to, has to trust someone who trusts somebody else, who trusts another person, who trusts another person that we don't even know. That's a big problem. And as an engineer, I am shocked. I'd like to get the uh, uh, AOC. Well, and then we've got, and and we've got media that are shutting down social media, especially any any discussion of this. So, you know, right. I, I have to know. know. So, you know, I happen to know right, about right. the Joseph Keating case, like your colleague there does, but. You know, why is Joseph Keating not on – why are his parents not on 60 Minutes? I'm sure they welcome sharing this. You know, the, that story was predominantly, I think, Europe, covered by European media, not broadly understood. And it's, and it's one of many that really deserves scrutiny. And maybe under scrutiny, um, there would be some discrepancies to what we actually understand about it. Meaning, you know, this idea that more information or better scrutiny is somehow going to be to the disadvantage of the the um, 
the vaccines, you know, this is absolutely empirically safe uh, argument. Uh, maybe not. Maybe it's more reassuring and maybe it's helpful. But we shouldn't be guessing on it, and we are. We are guessing on it. And uh, I guarantee you that this young man uh, never had any idea when he went in for that booster shot that, um, you know, he'd be uh, – you know, he was making a, a decision, a roll of the dice with his death. I mean, 26 years old. 26 years old. And then you ponder, even I don't know the mindset, I'm speculating about someone facing a heart transplant, maybe knowing about the, the embolic and thrombotic uh, effects of this and the blood clotting, clotting risks, you know, and what consideration that may go into his thinking about this, saying, hey, look, there's blood clotting risks uh, potentially, uh, and I'm you know, facing a heart transplant. I would prefer not yeah, to get the vaccine, doctors, or at least, yeah, or not doctors. get it, or maybe not get it right, not not get it right now. Maybe get it later. You know, but um, but they won't even. But they won't even. Well, a couple things. One is that this is that. Um, you know, the Boston uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, out there, and yeah. So because he won't get the vaccine, they won't give him that. They took him off the heart transplant list. And they've even I've read reports where I mean they even were like not have, not give an organ because the person who gave an organ did not have the, the vaccine. No, look, I, I understand so, there. I understand the thinking behind it and the pol- and how it goes into the policy, but that policy it's also based on the assumption that the universal application. And, and administration of this vaccine is beneficial when, when frankly, one of the great risks that we face right now are these mutations that are um, advanced and facilitated by that. And that's, and you can see that with the data that's come out on the fact that the individuals who are, you know, who, who get COVID and recover and have, you know, a natural um, immune status are, you know, considered multiple times uh, more safe and more inoculated than those who are vaccinated. That's a component of how, you know, when you're looking for light at the end of this tunnel on a macro level, the, the idea of individuals obtaining it, recovering, with therapeutics or without in a lot of cases is part of getting through it um, with the universal, um, you know, administration of, of these vaccines, you run the risk of the mutations becoming more and more complex, more and more difficult to challenge. And we can clearly see right now sitting here in um, you know, going on February of 2022, when Biden said he was going to come in and clear this thing up, trying to suggest it was somehow Trump mismanagement, which it wasn't, uh, that we've had, you know, more deaths on his watch than we had on Trump's watch. And you know, when I went back, when I went back during the campaign, when I went back during the campaign and attempted to put together a sequence of events of all the things Trump did, and his administration did, and particularly Peter Navarro did, who I think highly of, um, to 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 counter this and to address it. It you know it really was fairly in 
impressive levels of management. And everything we were told and lectured by the, by the left and by even mainstream media, and every, you know, the people were going to die because of these ventilator shortages. Not one American died from the lack of a ventilator. Trump got those things. He entered into these extraordinarily complex uh, private-public partnerships and got this stuff uh, disseminated and available. He was at work on the therapeutics until he encountered all of the, 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 the uh, institutional opposition. He put in place the travel ban, which stopped the bleeding. Could you have imagined if we had gone another three months, four months, six months? I mean, at what point would Tony Fauci have said, you know, I think my initial judgment about the fact that a travel ban is a bad idea was misguided. Would he have ever changed his mind? Thankfully, we had Trump there to say, no, 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 look, the, the origin of this is China. Uh, that's where it started. That's where it's originating from. That's where the threat is, and we're going to cut off the travel. That was one of the wisest decisions, and it was made in rapid-fire speed by uh, former President Trump. And, um, you know, and then you look at all of the other decisions, and you've got to include the Operation Warp Speed and the development of these vaccines as part of the success story, but they was not viewed by the former administration ever as being a universal solution or, or uh, something that would ever be mandated. It was another tool available for the purposes of containing it, particularly with high-risk patients, either in an elderly demographic or with comorbidities. Hey, Michael, I want to put my hand up if I may. Real quick, Tom, I do want to make this um, uh, this real step, because I know a lot of people who, you know, are, you know, working against these vaccine mandates, especially with, uh, at least locally here, uh, it's called HB 248, and it's a bill. We had um, a lady who's spearheading this, uh, Dinah Smith, last week, uh, who was spearheading this in the area in, in Ohio, uh, to try to you know push against not just the federal government mandates, but mandates by the state and mandates by businesses. You know, trying to make sure that people aren't made to to get vaccines uh, by the government or businesses, and also not be not discriminated. Uh, for not getting your vaccination as well, but a lot of the folks, you know, they're 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 really angry at Trump uh, because I think they either they haven't heard it, and, and that's the only thing I'm thinking. No, they're, I'm thinking they're, that they they're, haven't they're heard angry because the facts. That, yeah, they don't yeah, have I think the, because, because they're, the story they're being it. told is right. not one of that you know when you look ponder that you remember you remember when cuomo was saying oh the hospitals are going to be overwhelmed and you know trump you know sent military assets up there into new york harbor so that you could take the burden off of the the hospitals in the five boroughs in new york city um same out in southern california you, you know we did uh and by the way all of the effort like you can go back and look when did we first try to get uh, our representatives into China to look at, and uh, you know, both patients who were who were getting this, and to to see the Wuhan Institute of Virology when that was an operating thesis of possibility as it related to the origin. As early as early January, individuals were prepared to leave, and Xi Jinping did not let them in. And um, it's 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 outrageous that here in a few weeks we're going to have this coronation of, of, of this 
tyrant, this president for life, who is engaged in genocidal treatment of the Uyghurs, uh, defined by anyone who's looked at it, is continuing to refuse to allow these camps to be inspected, with these individuals being put into forced labor and imprisonment uh, simply because of their ethnicity, and on top of it, is got his fingerprints all over, even if you gave him the best benefit of the doubt, um, his fingerprints are all over his uh, facilitating the rapid acceleration of this on a global scale after it escaped the Wuhan Institute of Biology. And on top of it, by the way, these high-level gain-of-function institutes that, uh, like the Wuhan Institute of Biology, are being replicated in mass throughout China. And we've got a completely feckless president who is doing nothing to stop that. Did not even raise this issue, apparently, in his, you know, extraordinarily lengthy conversation uh, with Xi Jinping, and has done nothing to hold them accountable. (laughs) They are on the hook for trillions of dollars in damages to the world, and we need leadership to stand up right now because this is, you know, part of a this is a a chapter in a long book of multiple decades of us of us sort of shrinking from leadership in confronting what we really face uh in today's and i keep saying china's communist party because that's how it has to be described you know the people of china are not our enemy uh, it's 1.4 billion people they are they are being first and foremost, suppressed by Xi Jinping. And I think if you gave any one of China's provinces uh, the opportunity to have a referendum on independence, uh, just about every one of them would vote to leave. They are not communists. They don't subscribe to this ideology that's being imposed on them. Their religious liberties are being utterly decimated and suppressed their um, individual liberties, their economic freedom, um, the, the social uh, measurements that they're being put under are very elaborate. And I think that among a number of people who have been most articulate on this issue um, related to the vaccines are those, and you know, I guess you can count me in this category, who, who understand how that system works. You know, meaning, you know, everything sort of in in China is done off of a, a, you know, state-issued card, and you've got an extraordinary amount of control in the hands of the government. They know where you are, how you spend your money, what you're doing, uh, can locate you at any moment, and it is the mechanism. It's the mechanism under which about a thousand people in China's Communist Party control 1.4 billion people who do not want to be controlled. When you think about and how that's what do the, you that's do what that? Here real quick, uh, now Michael. Yeah, and that's what they are, that is what they're trying to, to do here, but uh, you know, Kelly wants to you know, bring something up as well. Go ahead, Kelly. But yeah, that's exactly what, and I do. They're, they're doing that in China, and they're trying to do that here, and I've never seen it, it happen so fast. Uh, I, real quick, Kelly, I just want to say this, is that, I mean, I think they, you know, the left was very comfortable bringing in what I call fascism or pseudo-communism here in the United States in a slow, uh, you know, in a slow walk. But I think once Trump got elected, it scared the hell out of him uh, because he's really a populist more than anything else, I say. And it scared the hell out of him, so they really had to accelerate their efforts to 
to, to clamp down control on the people, again, much like they do there in, in China. But go ahead, Kelly. Yeah, um, Michael, I, I wish to attract your ear for a few minutes because I want to throw something out and give you a tool, some information and a tool. I know you're excited about this, and I'm totally there with you, COVID-19 research team. We are so shocked and trying to do everything we can to educate people to not take the vaccine. But I wanted to share a perspective. Well, I, I'm not that far. I'm, that's not, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not telling anyone not take it. I'm saying that I think that decision should exist between the patient and their treating doctor who should be given as much information as possible so that the decision is an intelligent one. And, uh, and that decision should rest in there. It should not yeah. rest in the hands of any federal bureaucrat. Well, I agree. I agree. Cool. So anyway, all right. So I want to tell you um, another perspective that shows me when people are dying from this uh, booster shot, from the vaccine, there is not a will in the CDC, okay? Um, again, I'm, I'm an engineer. I've designed chemical process plans, oversaw the construction, operation, maintenance. There's a whole bunch of widgets. There's vulnerabilities. If you combine that, the vulnerabilities of a process plant chemical process plant, plus haste, plus greed, it's very possible to have bad batches. The CDC should be sending an investigative team because they know the lot number. They can track the vaccine to the person. They should be sending a team to these process plants, looking through the maintenance logs, uh, taking uh, quality control engineers, interviewing maintenance operators. What happened? Because we trace a batch to this process plant. Something's wrong. What happened? They're not doing that, which means what? They don't well, no, have because the because, will. Because the narrative, the narrative and the agenda has trumped um, the desire for the acquisition of understanding and truth. And uh, that's, I think, what is frightening here. And what that's why we need – and by the way, you know, as an, I'm, I wish I could recall his name, but you got me on the fly here. Um, but there's a Silicon Valley engineer – uh, you know, a couple PhDs from MIT who has been out there talking about the multiplier effect on the uh, VAERS data. Uh, haven't looked into that in great detail. As I mentioned, the deaths, I believe, are, are required to be reported. But he talked about prior CDC reporting that showed the under-reporting on, on, on vaccine, serious uh, vaccine side effects, you know, and it was an extraordinary number, meaning if you applied it, to the data that's in the VAERS system right now, you would have vastly inflated real numbers. And that's, um, you know, one of the arguments that he's been making. But I think uh, I don't know anything about the organization you've created there, but that sounds like exactly the sort of thing. That's what I would encourage everyone to do is, firstly, don't jump to assumptions. Don't think and and don't jump to conspiracy thinking. Um, and don't jump to the conclusion that the vaccine is inherently bad or wrong or, or something you shouldn't do, but do demand from our government data that they can obtain, may already have obtained and are not disclosing, but li- likely don't even have. And let's, you know, if that pressure on the government uh, is, is how these things get changed. This is still a okay, representative okay. democracy. Even though we're dealing right, with okay, okay, bureaucrats. Yeah, yeah. Let, let, let me throw something out to you, okay? Because 
CDC by now knows that people have died from these, okay? They know that, all right? And, and I'm not the head of this group. You know, they're very sound doctors, lawyers, uh, researchers, scientists. All right, but anyway, I want to go into why we're not getting the results that we should be seeing from our government. Willful misconduct in office by public officers, malfeasance, mer- uh, malfeasance, misfeasance, and derelict of duty. There is a solution to this to investigate and find out what's going on and hold government accountable. I wrote a book that published in 2011. It's called The Hidden Fourth Branch. It's about the grand jury. And what I'm going to tell you is when the cats are away, the mice will play. And per our Fifth Amendment, well, I'm just going to read this paragraph. It took me four hours to, to research and put together. It's a paragraph. No indictment, no accountability. On the federal, federal level, per the Fifth Amendment, for a federal felony, if there is no indictment nor a presentment, then there is no accountability. This means that absent an indictment or a presentment, federal government officials and employees can get away with breaking the law. This is best explained by a United States Supreme Court ruling of 1887, which states, quote, the Declaration of Article 5 of the Amendments to the Constitution that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury is jurisdictional, and no court of the United States has authority to try a prisoner without indictment or presentment in such cases. That's ex parte, Bain, 1887. Now, in 1973, SCOTUS Justice William O'Douglas wrote the same, quote, for no matter how obnoxious a person may be, the United States cannot prosecute for a felony without a grand jury indictment. The grand jury is the only accusatory body of the federal government recognized by the Constitution. That's United States versus Mara, 1973. What this means, no indictment, no uh, presentment. Fauci can continue to lie to Congress. Fauci and company can misrepresent data. Well, not under oath. CDC yeah, can represent data. Not under oath. That's perjury. But look, this is what we've been dealing but, with. But, and it, well, goes way, it goes all the way. Here, here's what I know that, but here's yeah. what I'm saying. Okay? Even if you put him under oath, he's still getting away with it. Him and Rand Paul yeah, bicker back and forth. Bit, and I'm on the same page with you, brother. I'm just saying it's this is an issue of enforcement and oversight and the fact that you know, the bodies of government, the institutions that we historically have relied on to operate objectively in accordance with the rule of law have routinely not done so. I mean, I co-founded a movement that was targeted by Obama's IRS that where, where literally uh, the administrator, Lois Warner, as you can recall, showed up under, under oath blabbed out that she didn't do anything wrong and then refused to answer questions, refused, they refused to produce documents, and no one was ever held to account. Um, and, and we went through with, you know, with both of these, this Russian investigation filled with, with insincere, inaccurate statements under oath uh, by key officials on key questions, you know, it seems like the only individuals being held accountable um, are those deemed threatening on our side. And, you know, you if, know if, they if we are being put through right, a lot. I, I understand that. I, I've been there. I've watched it. I was shocked at the hearings of the IRS going after uh, the Tea Party. Frustrating as can be. Do you know about your right of petition? You have the right to petition a grand jury. Did you know that? 
what we did, COVID-19 research team, uh, working with State House Senator Linthicum from Oregon and State House Senator Thatcher from Oregon, we submitted a petition to a federal grand jury, 500-plus pages, that, hey, the CDC is lying, they're withholding information, and we are about to launch on Stanford Health Freedom how other Americans can petition their grand jury and get these people held to account. Now, there was a gentleman who was lying and committing perjury in front of Congress, and they got him, grand jury indictment for perjury before Congress. So we have these tools. We have these tools, and it's exciting. It's frustrating to find out what's going on. It's more frustrating when nothing is being done. So we have these great tools and Robert, please uh, give Michael my phone number because I want to give these tools to you and whoever wants to run with yeah, this. Yeah, let's talk about that off the air. I am, I am, I am very aware of the constitutional right for uh, uh, petitions to impanel grand juries, and I'm also aware of how the grand jury process has also been on the other side abused against some uh, defendants in the sense that uh, – you think of these these uh, DAs who've shopped around grand juries. So they go to one grand jury, they can't get an indictment. That should, in theory, be the end of it, right? I mean, and you know, then they go to another grand jury, and it's uh, uh, until they get one. And you know, that's also an abuse of that system. But the grand jury process is, is an important uh, an important part of obviously the um, accountability and uh, of the uh, legal process. Yeah. Yeah, I've been before a grand jury at my petition. Um, House Majority Leader Tom DeLay, the Ronnie Earl Travis County. Well, uh, exactly, County. I was thinking, look, DeLay in Texas. The Ronnie, yeah, the, Ronnie that was Earl exactly was who a was big time liberal. liberal. Big time. Yeah, took him three grand juries. <laughs> yeah, Ronnie, you know, Ronnie Earl. Um, I forget how many it is. I know I commented on it at the time, but it was multiple grand juries by a highly partisan DA who could not get a grand jury to indict him, went to, went to one, went to another, went to another, went to another, finally got one. And then I think, you know, the House rules at the time were that an individual under indictment uh, needed to resign. He was the House majority leader, I believe, at the time. And, and of course, that was the, the full purpose, really, of this, this so-called law enforcement process was designed to take him out because he was a, uh, I don't know, a strident, hardened, uh, bold leader, and we don't have too many of those. Those are the most vulnerable people, and those are the people that the American people need to rally around right now. And here's a final point I wanted to make earlier. I see a new political paradigm emerging over these mandatory vaccinations, and I think it manifested in the Washington, D.C. rally last weekend, which was not a Trump rally. This was a hybrid of individuals. So, you know, like Robert Kennedy, that whole constituency, um, you know, there were a lot of individuals. There, and I started to think, you know, if, of, the, of the possibilities of, um, of, of the, the, the correlation of forces that is coming around this issue and the political momentum that could accompany this um, if we're able to build those bridges. Now, I thought the same thing about um, 
the uh, Occupy Wall Street crowd, I went up to <laughs> went up to New York City and attempted to talk with them because my view is like, hey, if you disagree with me on 98% of things, let's talk about the 2% we agree on, and we'll just work on those. You know, that's how I think it should be done. That's as I said earlier, not any way that Congress does things. And I and I wasn't able to make progress. There was a lot of dysfunction there, widely reported. I think everyone understood that. But I made the effort, and I made the effort because I think consistent with what I also said earlier, that's kind of the responsibility of leadership. I see an opportunity now emerging in this, and, and let's not call it, this is not anti-vaccination movement. This is a medical choice. You know, the, one of the most important choices of individuals, and certainly if, if you've been pro-choice on the issue of preborn life, and I'm a pro-life person, but, you know, it, the same arguments that you've applied are, are, are manifestly and maybe a thousand times more persuasive on this issue than they are on that, because you do not have another human life involved. You have your own personal life and a demonstrable lack of data and transparency that is making both your own ability to make a conscious medical decision and your physician's ability to make a, a, a constructive medical decision almost impossible simultaneously being told by all of your betters that, you know, this is the way it needs to be done and we're not going to stop until it is done. And when you look in some of these cases of what 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 European parliaments, you know, the, what what are they, are looking at doing in the way of enforcement, it, yeah, this is this is an, this is a very much a defining moment. I'm not trying to overstate it, but I don't want to understate it either. I mean, and and when I I look and I consider just things we've talked about, and you say, hey, 10 billion doses of these vaccines have been given out. And we're talking about short-term incidents, and we, we, we I mean, I, no one, I mean, I would love to hear, I would love to have a conversation with Fauci, because I just don't think, you know, media know the questions to ask him, but you know, you'd start with saying, how possibly, in a, in a, you know, with a vaccine that was rolled out with months, just a few months, and a very limited number of individuals who would participate in these trials, are you... Can you um, offer any assurance of long-term safety of this? And maybe he has an answer to that. But if he has, he, has an art, he should be out there articulating it because clearly there is a lot of reluctance by a very sizable percentage of American people to go through this process. This herd immunity concept that they have talked about is completely broken down, and a lot of it just rests, I think, on Biden's lack of persuasiveness with the American people. You know, that's why that's why that's what that's why they're pleading with Trump to do as he did do to get out and urge people to get the vaccine, because they realize yeah. it, it's really, really one of the most telling reflections of the political reality that as much as they despise Trump, they needed Trump to get out and say, hey, go get this vaccine. Hey, I'd like to ask you a few questions. All right. Because um, I'm really glad all your work, all that you're doing. This is awesome. Um would you like to get a petition to a federal grand jury or a county grand jury or a state grand jury? I don't know. Let's talk about all that off the air. Let's talk about all that off the air. And, yeah, because I, I would be glad to help I'll, in any way I'm happy I can. to discuss it with you. Yeah, I'd be glad yeah, to. I so think, Robert, I, I, look, I think my, the biggest opportunity right now is the coalition opportunity. Is that I'm seeing an extraordinary number of physicians 
and, and let me just say, you know, there were a lot of physicians active in the Tea Party movement. There were a lot of physicians who have been active on drug pricing issues. And, you know, one of the things that you see, not as often as you used to, but, I, but it's still there, is the philanthropic, humanitarian, ethics-based decency that this profession of medicine often exhibits and individuals who are, um, you know, really committing themselves to that. And then I'm seeing the, the, the body of people and the diversity of people that as they are learning more about this and witnessing the case, you know, that safe and effective, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, like I said earlier, those words mean something to people on a, you know, in, in daily street conversation. When I say something safe, that means you're not going to be injured, harmed, or die, right? Well, we know that their definition of safe is very different from that. When I say effective, that means you're going to take this and not get this uh, COVID-19 virus. And, you know, so these are nuanced uh, definitions that haven't been fully explained and the underlying data needs to be available. And we can't complicate the, the, this thing either. This, the simple reality is the underlying, this is my message, underlying position is that, that we have a pandemic in the country. This has gone on much longer than people believed it would be. Part of that is likely due to policy mismanagement and, and on the state level as well. And the best ally we have right now is data on what is working and what is not working. So on data on the therapeutics for those who obtain the virus and now on vaccines, uh, particularly with information emerging that they're not particularly effective on the mutations, we need to understand um, what the downside risk of this is. And in any other clinical scenario where you had to make a surgical uh, decision or you had to make a decision on whether to get your uh, wisdom teeth pulled, you would have a discussion with your treating physician, treating dentist, whatever it is, about here's, you know, the case for doing it, here's the case for not doing it, and then likely a recommendation. And we're all individuals. You know, you can't throw 330 million Americans into this giant bucket and say they're all the same. Um, obviously, I don't think anyone's disputing the fact that to be that the risk rate, uh, benefit ratio shifts completely into the um, risk area with um, school age kids. I mean, and I, and I think that's what's really uh, motivating a lot of parents to finally awaken to the fact of, uh, as Trump said out in Arizona rally a week or two ago, you know, leave our kids alone. Um, that's a good message. You know, the, the, the health of children, it should be the concern of, of, of children. And we are setting extraordinary precedent with how we respond to this, in my view. It's not going to be the last time we face these decisions of the balance between um, authority in uh, individual rights, in this case, the fundamental right of health freedom versus government edicts um, of doing what they say because what, because, you know, they say it simply, 
even when you have consecutive statements that they've made that have proven not a little bit wrong, but wholly wrong. And those individuals are still not only held accountable, not only not been held accountable, but still in those positions. Hey, uh, somebody's coming over, and I really appreciate you coming on tonight. Thank you very and, uh, much for having me. Appreciate it, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you guys. Yeah, i got to get going, too, but I, I look forward to our phone call off air. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Oh, thanks, Kelly. And then, yeah, I mean, if, if there's anything, any just, you know, closing comments or anything, we'd like to give our guests uh, an opportunity. Oh, no, you already did it. Um yeah, that was just kind of I, – I didn't know he was leaving that like that. Um, Joseph, uh, you came back at the the, the right time. Uh, let's go ahead, and uh, when you're ready, I'll, you know, just push the one on your number dial. We'll get him in. Uh, I was kind of taken aback. Uh, I didn't know – I mean, it sounded like our guest was winding down, but I didn't know exactly how long he's going to stay. I really wanted to talk about a few other things with him uh, that I mentioned, but the, the conversation kind of – just ended just abruptly. So I don't know. I do appreciate, of course, all the time that uh, he did stay on uh, this evening, uh, but, you know, it, it kind of ended abruptly. And then I was trying to get some other thoughts, but then it kind of descended. So, I mean, you know, that happens. Um, but let's go ahead and bring in Joseph. Uh, thank you very much, Joseph, for coming to the show. Uh, uh, interesting conversation. Uh, you know, he got a lot of information <laughs> there from the guest. Again, I've you know, I'm I'm, okay. I'm definitely going to need just a quick recap, and I do apologize. I was uh, celebrating uh, my birthday a little bit early. Yeah. I don't even want to be reminded I'll be 42. Jeez, can we just turn back the clock or something like that, all right? <laughs> yeah, for, for someone who's got some years over you. <laughs> but, uh, right. well, I mean, I was, I was well, I'd like for our guest to, to recap with you, but um, he's not on the call any longer. Uh, I was kind of surprised okay. by how abruptly the call ended, um, and I thought we were going to – I was hoping to talk about uh, about more things, but I guess I'll, perhaps we'll have them, uh, you know, on the show again. Uh, you know, I want to talk about, you know, more about, you know, DirecTV's taking One American News off. I want to talk more about the, the January Correct. Commission, talk more about the, the Supreme Court, um, but I don't – I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll get an update uh, from our guest and, and, and you know, yeah. have him back on the show. Uh, was he a candidate, or I'm not sure what type of guest he was. No, he was actually uh, Michael Johns. Uh, he, John, okay. He's uh, the co-founder, one of the co-founders of the National Tea Party Movement. He was also a former White House speechwriter for uh, the president and uh, political analyst for the Heritage Foundation. So definitely want to have a, you know, she definitely has a background uh, in government. He also spent years uh, in the medical field. So definitely want to get his expertise on, you know, what's going on with some topics the, uh, today. Uh, we talked mainly about, uh, you know, COVID and the vaccinations and how people, you know, are dying from the, you know, from the vaccine, but it's, it's so underreported. Um, I know him and Kelly were, you know, talking about a few things. Are you still there, Kelly? I know you had your guest coming in, but I, I still see you on the on the call. Are you able to give a little I, synopsis? I only, to, well, I'm uh, I'm preparing the email. Yeah, are you there? Hello? Yeah. 
mean, yeah, yeah. If you uh, can give me some options, yeah, that'd be great. I'm I'm gonna go ahead and send you a uh, gonna go ahead and send you a uh, email, Robert. You can forward to Michael John, and I just gotta get off and a lot to discuss. Just don't have time, and um, um, just I guess we'll see you next week. Oh uh, yeah, we'll see, see you next, next week. week. Next week. Next week we have slotted uh, to come on the show someone from the LaRouche Pack. Um, uh, we will be looking to have him on, uh, Ian Over Ian Overton. Uh, again, he's with the LaRouche Pack. We'll be talking about um, the things he's been working on, and we're looking to have him uh, on the show next week. And then the week after that we are uh, have the candidate uh, Jim Renacy. That's on February 9th. Uh, where, of course, we'll be talking about his campaign uh, running for the uh, Republican primary for the governor of Ohio. And we're also working on uh, getting uh, Congressman Steve Chabot on the show. Uh, He was actually at an event literally up the street from where I live this evening, uh, but I was unable to attend because I was doing show prep for uh, tonight's uh, episode. So uh, kind of missed that opportunity there, but I've been I've been talking with the campaign manager about getting uh, getting him on the show. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, you know get uh, get a date uh, nailed down there uh, for uh, Congressman Steve Shabbat, who is running for uh, re-election. Well, no, I think that's outstanding. You have a great lineup coming up, which is good. That will show uh, they'll love that uh, as we're getting closer to the midterm elections. But maybe if you could just give me a little synopsis about what the debate was about, and maybe I could see if I could opine. I know as I was getting closer to the phone, the only thing I heard was a little bit of a back and forth between Kelly and the guests, something about uh, the Constitution or um, I think Kelly wanted to exchange his info. The only parts I caught was the guest says he's very uh, um, very knowledgeable about the Constitution and things of that nature, so um, I'm not sure. Um, I'll give you the floor on that one. It doesn't have to be a big synopsis, just a little piece so I have an idea. That's okay. Well, I mean, yeah, Kelly's, look, Kelly's looking to, you know, give us some tools, some tips, you know, on, on trying to move things forward. I think uh, – you want to keep the fo- you know keep the focus about the vaccines and how we need to get more data, you know about the vaccines, get more data about COVID, you know, especially get more data about you know how the vaccine is affecting people, people are dying from it, and how we need so to get more accountability. Now, also, I mean, it sounds like he's a little jaded. It sounds like he's a little jaded from the Republican Party, especially the leadership, and how you know we really need need to get. I think. You know, new leaders in there, and frankly, yeah, that's something I would have to agree with. Correct. So he he is for uh, the vaccination being a personal choice, and he is pro-conservative. Am I correct? More or less. Well, yeah, he's for it being a choice. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not an anti-vaxxer. I mean, we're not anti-vaxxers either on the program. Correct. Um, I mean, I really didn't get an opportunity to converse much. Uh, uh, with our guest tonight, and you know, you know, Kelly wants to get some things out. I mean, I thought perhaps that, you know, I kind of stood back because I thought perhaps, you know, him and I were going to be able to have some. And I knew Kelly had limited time tonight, so I wanted Kelly to be, you know, ha- have some time to speak with them. And I, I kind of hang back because I thought we were going to be talking about other topics uh, this evening, but uh, our, our guest okay. kind of left, kind of. 
Well, hey, I'm still on, and that's okay because this is a great segue for me to join the show, and it's always a pleasure to be on, Robert, and that's that's no problem whatsoever. You and I will just go mano y mano unless hopefully we get a Skype caller between the next nine minutes as we go into the uh, after-dark hours. But, yeah, no, no, definitely a couple of events I wanted to bring up. Number one, my prayers and my thoughts go out to the two police officers who were gunned down in the streets of New York over the past weekend. Uh, I think what happened is horrendous. It shows that uh, the crime rates in cities like Chicago and New York and Los Angeles are, have astronomically risen 215% from last year. These are very dangerous cities. Um, the police are not safe. You do have uh, Mayor Eric Adams who did campaign on, you know, not being a candidate of the left to defund the police. But, you know, I have my reservations about him. I've yet to see him with his actions. You know, actions speak louder than words. We know the left is really great at talking the big game, but can they walk it? And so he went to the hospital over the weekend uh, to pay their respects because I think one was um, uh, critically wounded but then later died that night. And uh, so, you know, but let's see if he's going to back it up with actions because, you know, you need law and you need order. And without that, any civilization uh, will eventually will will topple. And if you study ancient civilizations, that's exactly how the Romans, the Greeks, uh, civilizations like that, that's how they toppled the Egyptians, you know. Uh, corruption, things of that nature. Um, but to see that it, it, and I'm not trying to politicize this, Robert, but the facts are the facts. You could go to the Congressional Budget Office, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and the crime is like night and day in red cities or states compared to blue cities or states. Um, and that's why I think you have an influx of a lot of people who are fleeing these liberal strongholds which are spiraling out of control, crime in big dem-run cities, and they're saying we need to get out for the sake of uh, us, and maybe they have kids or maybe they have their parents, or but they need to get out. New York is, is no longer a safe place. It hasn't been for quite a while, and that just shows you that liberalism does not work. Liberalism in the 90s worked. That's because Bill Clinton was smart enough to move to the center, and he built the Blue Dog Democratic Party. Um, and, of course, everyone wanted to ride that gravy train all the way through um, the 90s. Uh, the six out of his eight years were one of, of many successes. Um, of course, he did have some blunders like any other president, but if he were to outweigh the uh, cons versus the pro, he definitely had more pros than cons um, than any other president democratically for a long time. He was the last era, Robert, of what a blue dog Democrat used to be. If you actually go on YouTube and you play back some of his um, uh, re-election campaign uh, messages or the debates with Bob Dole, he's speaking about love for country, the death penalty for people who commit murder, uh, securing our borders. You would think he was a Republican. You'd be like, what? Did the, did the left really used to talk like that? And it's like, yeah, they did. They once espoused those uh, beliefs and ideologies. They were patriots. They loved their country. They voiced that they loved their country. Uh, they did it with pride. They, they, they did care about the border. Uh, you know, so BLM wasn't even alive back then, or Antifa, or these absurd uh, laws in cities like New York and L.A., that says that if you commit a crime, the next day you can be released on no bonds. I mean, this is just 
insane. And then I'll go to one more point, and I'll, I'll take the floor to you. Now, Joe Biden has completely lost it. I believe it was yesterday or the day before. He didn't know his mic was still on. If he had a brain, he would have known that. And when uh, Fox correspondent, White House correspondent Peter Ducey asked him a question about inflation, he called him a stupid SOB. And I'm like, wow, you've lost it, buddy. And your handlers have no control of you. No wonder why you are always hiding in your basement, even in the White House. And that is a sign that he is just, he's a shell of the person he once was. If you even go back to 2012, when he waged re-election with Obama, he's still a shell of what he is today in comparison. His cognitive abilities were not even in question back then. So you have the regime... And I always tell people there are consequences when elections are stolen. When power is stolen, that's not meant to be stolen. The outcome is not good. So we have a regime that doesn't know their left from their right. Yesterday, they released over 200 single males who crossed the border illegally in Texas. They brought them to a detention center and released them out in the public. And one more thing. Here's the kicker. You know, the big deal about TSA was after 9-11, George W. Bush created Homeland Security, and a lot of these uh, um, terrorists who crashed the planes were able to easily pass metal detectors and things of that nature. Well, now if you're an illegal immigrant and you need to get on a plane to go somewhere, you don't need to show proof of ID. All you need to do is show the document that you were apprehended at the border, you were released into the U.S., and you're good to go. And I'm thinking, has the left lost it? You might as well just have signs and say, we welcome you, ISIS. Oh, wait a minute. Donald Trump got rid of them. We welcome you, K-ISIS. We welcome you, Taliban. We welcome you, Iran. Maybe we'll pull out the red carpet for our enemies. Maybe the next time President G is here, uh, he could go with Biden and get a spa. I don't know. Maybe Vladimir Putin. Maybe he can send him some flowers, kind of make up for uh, their uh, so-called uh, disagreement. Are you, are, you, are you kidding me? You're letting people without identification on planes? You are opening the door to another 9-11. If not, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say, Robert. I mean, that, that was the whole point of why George W. Bush created and then implemented Homeland Security, and they federalized the security of all 50 states and territories by creating the TSA. The TSA is there to make us safer. Now, you start telling people you don't need IDs? Okay, I don't feel safe, and by the way, then why are, the, why are, why are we the people, why are our taxes going towards Homeland Security and, and, and paying TSA? when they're not keeping us safe. Why should it go to them? Until they get it all solved, I don't think any taxpayer dollars should go to them. And I will defer back to you. Yeah, well, we also probably heard the report, uh, you know, about the, the ones that are being shipped and then just dispersed all through the, all through the, uh, the country. Yeah, that is, that's, no, that was a, that's correct. Yeah, that's there was a correct. report where that you when they said they were mostly they were, you know mostly men. It's like 
why are they importing all these, you know, illegal men into this country and then dispersing them all around the country? It, it, exactly. It doesn't make any sense because the argument from the left has always been, well, you know, these are families and they're in danger back home and, you know, they need, they, they're requesting amnesty. Okay, let's say that's true, which we all know that's a, that's a, 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 a bunch of baloney. Then why would you let single men with no spouses, with no children come in? Uh, do you really think they're the utmost uh, – how would I say? Do you think they're extraordinary citizens who uh, are, pil- are – are, how do I have to say it? Sorry, brain freeze. Who are pillars of the community? Are you kidding me? I mean half of those could be uh, drug smugglers. Half of those can be from the cartel, Sicarios, which are hitmen. Half of those could be coyotes. Wow. I mean, so that defeats the argument of the left of, oh, well, you know, we've always been the free leader of the world, and we're a compassionate nation, and, you know, if, if a family needs um, asylum. And I'm thinking, you know, you're such a bunch of hypocrites, because what about the people we still have left behind Afghanistan? They don't get priority? How about the Afghanis who gave the Americans 20 years of their life and their loyalty? In return, with one promise, Robert, if they were ever needed to be evacuated, the Americans would never leave any men behind. And this is the biggest double standard of the 21st century. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. You're talking about justifying 1.7 million people, Robert, illegally crossed the border last year in 2020. It is under the regime of Biden under the presidency of our rightful president, Donald Trump, we had the lowest crossing of illegal immigrants in U.S. history. The proof is in the pudding. And yet the people who should be getting the priority to amnesty are our Afghans, our allies, and the Americans who are still left behind, actual American citizens with citizenship. And the left wants to lecture us on the border and being humanitarian They are the biggest hypocrites of the world. It sickens me, Robert, because I love my country. I am grateful to have been born in this country. Some people would give an arm and a leg to be born in this country, live alone to at least have citizenship or marry somebody to get a green card. You know, we are fortunate. We live in the greatest country of the world, and the left is doing a great job of trying to destroy the fabric and everything that this country stands for. And so, yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is a battle for the soul of our country, and you better believe I am on the side of patriotism. I am on the side of upholding our constitutions federally and at the state level, and I am for freedom. I am not for tyranny. I am not for communism. I am not for socialism. I am not for big government knows better because big government doesn't know better. And you could point to any point in American history, anytime big government has always had an overreach, it never ends in a positive outcome. We don't need big government running our lives and telling us everything to do. Government should remain in the roles as per the United States Constitution and the framers of our founding fathers did, and it should be intact like that. It completely should be intact. So, yes, my heart is broken because this country, I would argue, Robert, we're more divided than even the Civil War of 1861 to 1865. I think we're even more divided then because people always think that the war was primarily 
because the South, which used to be run by the Dixiecrats, which before they decided to secede from the Union, the Southerners were Democrats. That was their base. And it wasn't about that they just wanted to keep slavery for the sake of keeping slavery. It was because cotton was their main source of income and commerce, and they needed the slaves to do the heavy labor. But you didn't have the Confederacy stating they wanted to secede because they wanted to become Bolsheviks. They wanted to become communists. They wanted to become fascists. You didn't hear any of that rhetoric. It really came down to the South saying, well, you have no right, United States government and Abraham Lincoln, you have no right to tell us whether we are allowed to keep slaves or not because this is the bread and butter of our industry. You have no right to come here and tell us how to run it, and we have the right to secede. And, hey, a war was fought, and the, the Union won, and they had to join again as one country. So, Robert, I want your opinion on that, but this is no hyperbole. I say this is the most divided we have ever been in our 242 years as a constitutional republic, and I would say that we are in our most dangerous point both fiscally and morally than ever in any period of this country and its 242 years of existence. What say you, Robert? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say it's been more uh, divided as, as it ever has been. And, you know, and, and whether the, the Civil War can be seen as, as, as more principled as, as the Civil War source that we're seeing now is that, you know, I, I, it was, you know, I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't live there. I mean, I, it, it's just what you read in the history books. And when you read that, when you learn that when you're a kid, you know, time fades. And I know that it was more than just, you know, about slavery. It was also about, you know, is the, should the federal government, you know, be the one that really wields the power in the, in the country? Or should the power belong to the states? That was a, a huge part of what the, the Civil War was about as well. Now, one thing I wonder, I mean, because they literally were killing each other over it. Uh, back in the Civil War, and I mean, they're not doing it now. Uh, I, I don't know if – but I just feel like that we don't just disagree now. We hate each other, but, I mean, if you're killing each other <laughs> in a war over – I mean, that, you've got to have a lot of hate to kill somebody, I would imagine. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. But, again, I wasn't, I wasn't there, so I really can't speak on what the hearts and minds were of, of, of the people who actually lived uh, through the Civil War. Um, but we'll, I, I, uh, I can't. <clears throat> Correct. I can't either, but I am a history buff. I love history. It's one of my things. I just always have been. And I study a lot of history, and I'm not talking about Googling or buying a book. I'm talking about actually going to the library and using the, the databases at the library uh, well, that's true. You know, system. Yeah, you can't learn that yeah, stuff in schools now, and, huh? <laughs> correct, correct. And, and um, so that's what I do. And, you know, you got to remember when the Civil War was fought, we didn't owe $21 trillion in debt. Uh, we were not at the precipice of almost becoming a bankrupt nation. We didn't have our economy shut down. Uh, we didn't have a border crisis. Uh, we didn't have Iran, uh, Russia, which uh, back then was still Russia, was in the Soviet Union back then, or North Korea didn't even exist back then. But at least we didn't have Iran 
or we didn't have uh, the Soviet Union that wanted to wipe us off the, the face of the, of, of the map. And so, you know, fiscally, this is the most we've ever been in deficit. Obviously, this deficit is not sustainable. If it keeps on going on like this, we will go bankrupt. No hyperbole. This is not a, um, you know, uh, a conspiracy theory. Just look at the numbers that come out from the Congressional Budget Office. We can't continue sustaining this. Now, what I ponder, Robert, is if we are having, if we are literally on the verge, not yet, but if we literally on the verge of a modern-day depression, Okay, if we're literally on the verge of that, then we're in a lot of trouble. And we were not in, on, the, on, on the verge of a modern-day depression uh, during the Civil War. So we are in a lot of trouble. And you would think that in a pandemic, okay, let's keep the cost down, right, until we get back on balance. But instead, they're wasting billions and billions and billions of dollars to allow all these migrants to cross the border. And I'm thinking this is the worst time you can try to do this. Or, you know, um, the build back better. I'm like, are you, are you serious? Do you just want to destroy this country? I mean, Robert, if this country ever went bankrupt and it collapsed, not only would it create a domino effect across the globe, do these liberals or politicians not realize all their loved ones, they're done, we're done, period. If you look at what happened at Greece when it went bankrupt, people couldn't pull money out of their accounts. The money was gone. It was anarchy and chaos. Germany had to bail them out. And Germany didn't bail them out because, oh, we just want to be your ally that wants to be there for them. They realized this could create a domino ripple effect economically and could start hurting other countries within the EU. So at the end of the day, how can you do this at this time of crisis? Joe Biden and the left do not realize if we go down, all your loved ones, they suffer. They go down with us. We all sink. It's like we're on the Titanic, and you know we're going to hit the iceberg. How many people will get safely to the, to the lifeboats? And they're spending all this money and all these big projects, and I'm going to answer the rhetorical question of why would they do this is because they are completely, Robert, delusional. They are so out of touch with reality, and what's scary is they're not playing the part, because if they were, they deserve to be nominated for an Oscar, Best Performance, Best Acting or Actress Performance of the Year. No, they really believe, like the Nazis did, like the Bolsheviks did, like the Romans did, like the Greeks did, like the Egypts did, like the Egyptians, I'm sorry, like they did, they all follow the same pattern, which ends into destruction. And if, if, if we topple, they are, the, the, the people who used to rule these civilizations, they actually believed that what they were doing was right and just, even though it went against common sense and logic and rationale. And that, Robert, is what makes the Democrats so dangerous, is when they actually truly believe in their ideology and they're willing to die for their ideology. And that is why I tell people this is no longer a choice between Republican and Democrats, uh, progressives and conservatives, left and right. This is our only chance 
that we get in 2022 and 2024 to fundamentally transform our nation back to what it used to be, no, not what Barack Obama wanted it to be, before we get to the point of no return, Robert, and the point of the no return is if we go eight more years in this path, we are going for fiscal bankruptcy. We will default. Social Security will be gone. Medicare will be gone. It all collapses. And that is why 2022 and 2024 is so pivotal because it's important that the right patriots turn course. And what they'll do is they'll do what never happened in Titanic. History says in Titanic, on the day that they hit the iceberg, the veteran captain of the ship of 24 years, the Titanic was supposed to be his maiden, his retiring voyage, his last hurrah. He got 20 iceberg warnings. And what does a veteran like him do? He crumbles up the paper. He throws it in the basket. He says, don't worry about it. We're fine. Oh, and he orders the last boilers to be lit so that it can go at the fastest capacity, all the steamers. And so that's how I view our country right now, Robert. We're on the Titanic. And if we continue to ignore these iceberg warnings, we will ship. We, we will sink. That is the inevitable. We will crash into an iceberg. We won't have time to turn around the ship. We will sink, and not everyone will be saved. I'll go back to you, Robert. Well, I think, well, I think that well, – I mean, well, here's what I think. I mean, I think the Democrats think that the collapse of the United States is the, is the world uh, hegemon. It, 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 the time has come. They, they think it's going to be over. And so I think that's why they're, they're, they're so ready to, you know, kind of give the reins over or help give the reins over to China. And I think that, you know, you ever watch – you know what the, the, the saying, art, <clears throat> art mimics life or something of that nature, or life mimics art or something. It's some kind of quote like that. Well, the reason I bring this up is, you know, you have these people – you know, like if you watch X Files, you know, hear me out, people. You know, if you ever watch, you know, like the X Files or V or something of that nature, V for visitors, where you have this cabal or even the government that has, you know, basically in cahoots with these aliens because these aliens are planning on coming and taking over the planet, right? So what they do is they cut deals, you know, with these aliens, thinking, hey, if, you know, We'll sell out our people, and, and in these movies, I mean, they're even selling out human lives um, because with the promise that, well, hey, if we help these aliens, then, you know, they're, they're going to keep our family safe because they're going to owe us for positioning them to, to take over and have power. Well, I, 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 I think that that's what, you know, our government or people, some people in our government – uh, are thinking with China. They think, well, th- it's inevitable. So let's help China out in whatever ways we can so that they can take over power. And when they do, you know, because we help them get there, they'll owe us and somehow they'll, you know, they'll leave all, us and our families alone. They'll let us do our our um, business dealings. You know, our, our, our families will prosper, <clears throat> a.k.a. look at Hunter Biden. And we'll be okay, and they'll sell out the rest of America, even when it talks about you know selling out American lives where people actually die from it. I mean, that's what I think. I, th- I think they believe they're going to be protected, and they think by helping China is the way to do it. 
And the only way they can bring, the only way they can open the reign of the only way they can open up the reins of China is to bring down the United States. Because frankly, the United States is the only power at this point that can uh, that can counteract what China is, or what China is trying Correct. to become. And I have one response for that: appeasement. Ask Neville Chamberlain how that worked out with Hitler. Oh, wait a minute, he's dead. Yeah, the British tried to do the very same thing. The Treaty of Versailles had very strict rules as to what the Germans could do and could not do as a result of them losing the Great War, which is World War I. And Hitler said, no, I'm going to push it. I'm going to rebuild the military. Europe and France said nothing. I'm going to annex Austria. Europe and France said nothing. Instead, in 1938... uh, I may have the year wrong. I'm sorry. If I do, my apologies. It was either between 1935 to 38, but I think it was 1938. The former prime minister of uh, Britain before Winston Churchill, uh, Chamberlain, he thought appeasing the Fuhrer was going to work. Yeah. And then a little bit of a year later, they invaded Poland. And he, they created the alliance with the Soviet Union to make sure that Hitler wanted to make sure that the Soviet Union wouldn't be waging an attack on, on the Third Reich for, uh, you know, invading Poland. And so it just shows you appeasement does not work. And if I last remember, eight years of appeasing our enemies under the Barack Biden administration, it only emboldened our enemies even more. And honestly, so many Americans were disappointed and fed up and promises made and promises not kept by the Obama-Biden administration. And at the end of the day, you know, we were in a bad place foreign policy-wise. I mean, here we are dumping over $150 billion to Iran to appease them. Uh, That was a sign to say, should we roll out the red carpet at a state dinner at the White House? And that paved the way for Donald Trump. So you know what, for all those liberals who hate Donald Trump, it's a popular line from Batman, 1989, Jack Nicholson. Towards the end of the movie, you know, Jack Nicholson goes, well, I created you, but you created me. You dropped me into that bat of Axis chemicals. You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? So in reality, um, liberals, progressives, whatever you want to call yourselves, you created Donald Trump. You paved the way for Donald J. Trump. You sucked at your job, you, missed, you led the country in the dumpsters, and you paved the way. So CNN and MSNBC and all you liberals who explode the moment you talk about Donald A. Trump, you know what? You created Trump. I'm sorry. It was eight years of failure, and you created the pathway to a Trump. If Obama would have been the hope and change, and yes, we can, that he promised he would have been in 08, then maybe Donald Trump would have never had a pathway. And the only thing Obama left us with was no hope and just change in our pockets. What say you, Robert? Well, yeah, I mean, well, no, and all, you know, what I found, it, found interesting as well is that, you know, both Obama, he was supposed to be, you know, a uniter. Remember he said, you know, you know race relations would improve under Obama. Well, race relations actually worsened under Obama. And then you have Biden, 
who's saying, oh, I'm going to be the uniter, and he's done nothing but divide us even more than he already has, though we were already divided. So it's like they do the exact opposite of what they say they're going, they're going to do. He says, I'm going to lock down this virus. Well, guess what? More people dying under his administration, that, you know, regime as I describe it, you know, <clears throat> and, and, and than it did for, during Trump's administration. You know, and I think to one of your points you made earlier, you know, about what uh, what Germany did. I mean, just just look at you know what you know what happened with China. I mean, now I know it was set up that China was already going to get Hong Kong. You know, that was something that was always you know only agreed on. But now what are they, they going to do? They're going to start you know threatening and well not starting. They're threatening Taiwan. You know, so they're they're looking to you know probably annex, you know, Taiwan, because they think that Taiwan should belong to them. And it's only been Biden's weakness that's been emboldening them. I mean, those type of things did not happen, you know, when Trump was in office, because they, they, you know, they, one, Trump couldn't be bought as much as the Democrats try to say that he could. You know, but then if you look at, you know, you know, Hunter Biden, you know, and then of course, what's going on there? You know, with their their deals and their what their their families making and the money in China. Absolutely, and um, to be honest, it's it's going to take Donald J. Trump to win back the presidency to change the course. Because in the four years he was president, our enemies never dared. Our enemies never dared. They were kept at bay because they knew President Donald J. Trump. He was serious. He's he doesn't bluff. When he drew red lines, they were, dread li- they were red lines. When he took out al-Baghdadi, he took him out. When he bombed the right. SHIT out of ISIS, he did. He, he, he eliminated the ISIS caliphate, which wasn't easy. ISIS was running the whole show in the Middle East. He eliminated and he told Iran, guess what? You're getting sanctioned. We are sanctioning you, and no one like Obama, we're not giving you a payout. We're not. And so sadly… I only see things escalating um, internationally. They're just going to get worse. Let, let, let's make it a reality. Our, our allies don't even have confidence in America's backing anymore. I mean, if you look at Germany not with, not and with, Canada and Britain, exactly, they don't, they don't trust us anymore. And that's a big problem because remember, folks, the Great War, World War I and World War II, would have never been won if it was only fought by the United States. People forget that. That's why they call it a world war. We needed Russia to be able to defeat the imperial Japanese and the Nazis. Uh, we needed Canada. Uh, we needed France. We needed Britain. Couldn't do it alone. And so we're at the same precipice over here. China takes over Taiwan. You know, that'll be the first time in history since Taiwan has been an independent country. It's just going to wave the, the flag to our enemies of saying, you basically can run mock on us. You basically right, can exactly. settle over us. Exactly. And the sad part is Taiwan, Taiwan falls. Yeah. yeah, Taiwan, I think Taiwan is even more important than the Ukraine. Um, I think, you know, if Taiwan falls, I think that, that would be more um, – I think that would be more detrimental to our national security and one thing I want to bring up, and I bring up all the time, and this could be a topic that you know we bring up with Michael, um, you know, because I, you know, we were chatting a little bit on, or he sent me a message. Um, 
you know, he sent me a message on Twitter, and, you know, we'll, we'll probably have him on the show again. He does, you know, said he um, is looking uh, forward to uh, keeping in touch and, uh, you know, talk about, you know, other issues. And so well, I'll definitely be chatting with him again, and we'll, we'll go over some stuff. But, you know, but, <clears throat> excuse me. But, yeah, well, if, uh, if China, if, if Taiwan falls, I think that's going to be more detrimental to our, our national security. And one thing people don't think talk about, and I, I want to bring this up when we talk about other issues with, with Michael and then other people we have on here, is I, I cannot overemphasize, and no one is talking about this, uh, really, except here on Bard's Logic. And, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to sound like a, a one-issue person, but I think people, including some of the – the politicians, you know, or the candidates that we've been uh, interviewing and, and, and talking with, is they don't seem to really truly understand the importance of the American space program. I mean, you have, you know, you have China is on the moon now. You have China, you know, sending probes and stuff to Mars. I'm telling you, if you look at history, you, you, when you used to have to have large manned armies, the best, strongest armies in the world, I mean, look at Persia. You know, you know, then after Persia, it was Alexander the Great. You know, then now after Alexander the Great, it was Rome. And what did, these, what did they have? They had the powerful land armies. When people, you know, had, you know, the, whoever had the strongest, you know, land presence, you know, were the – basically were the hegemon of the world. And then, you know, right. it, it, some people like to even say empire, but the, the fact is they were the preeminent power of the world. And then you had England, you know, once, once people start navigating the seas and they were able to, you know, control the, 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 trade, the sea trade routes and control the sea, well, then, you know, look, look at the empire that, that England was able to build. And, you know, and then what, and so then, you know, and they became the preeminent power of the world. Well, then when they, we start doing a lot, and, and unfortunately, folks, unfortunately, this is, you know, we're talking about warfare. Whoever has the power in warfare has the you know, preeminent power. And we're human beings. And unfortunately, we're probably always going to be at war. I hate to say it. I mean, I can't imagine how advanced te- technologically, you know, the, uh, that we would be if we spent more of our time, effort, and resources on technology and improving the human condition instead of making, you know, weapons of war to kill each other. I think we'd be far much, but the, the flaw with that is we're human beings. You know, our technology exactly. has evolved more than our, our you know, than than we have. Um, only by Correct. improving humans, you know, only by improving humans, I think the human condition is really going to turn. But anyway, to get more in, online, back in line, is that once the United States had air superiority, it was our air superiority. That you know began you know us becoming the preeminent power of the world, and then of course we were the preeminent power not just air, but then we took over land and sea. Well, what is going to be Correct. the next battleground? We we don't see and it I now. And I agree with you. But the next battleground is space, and it's already Correct. happening. And I agree with you. I completely agree. It, it, it's space superiority, and a lot of people who are not educated on this topic they laugh it up as oh we have bigger problems. No, this is about warfare. If we ever had to implement a major-scale warfare, we would have the superiority, and we would be ahead of the ground game in space. It's pivotal. 
the more we let China advance, the more we're going to continue to lead from behind. And we can't do that. We can't. And that is why President Trump addressed NASA. He was trying to address all of the important and vital issues and trying to get all our ducks in the row. But yes, he was the first president in a very long time to bring up NASA again, because remember, I think NASA was dismantled somewhere in the 2000s, Robert. I'm not sure if you know the exact year, but... I, I think it was 13 or 14 or well, 2011. Obama started using NASA more. Yeah, he used it more about monitoring climate change and space exploration. Correct, correct. But um, which is a shame. Do you do you remember the year when NASA officially disbanded and they had the last flight, banded the program NASA oh, overall? Oh, you talking about the I space shuttle? One. The space shuttle. Yes, correct, correct. Yeah, when they when I, I don't recall the the year. I think it was. Um, I think 2010, actually, is when they did the Something last space shuttle. Correct, correct. And this is a time where we need to revamp our space uh, program. We, we need it because it's a matter of national security. It's a matter, uh, it's a matter of uh, international policy. We have never... 